turn in God's Word this evening to the book of Isaiah, the book of Isaiah, chapter 44, and we'll begin reading at verse 6, and we'll be reading through verse 20, Isaiah 44, beginning to read at verse 6. Um, neglected to mention at the end of the presentation, thank you, Olivia, for your time in putting that together. Uh, that's not an easy thing of picking out the pictures and so on. So thank you for uh, your willingness to serve us in that capacity. Isaiah 44. We begin reading again then at verse 6. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. I am the first and I am the last. Besides me there is no God. Who is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and set it before me. Since I appointed an ancient people, let them declare what is to come and what will happen. Fear not, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from of old and declared it? And you are my witnesses. Is there a God beside me? There is no rock. I know not any. All who fashion idols are nothing. and The things they delight in do not profit. Their witnesses neither see nor know that they may be put to shame. Who fashions a God or casts an idol that is profitable for nothing. Behold, all his companions shall be put to shame, and the craftsmen are only human. Let them all assemble, let them stand forth. They shall be terrified, they shall be put to shame together. The ironsmith takes a cutting tool and works it over the coals. He fashions it with hammers and works it with his strong arm. He becomes hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water and is faint. The carpenter stretches a line. He marks it out with a pencil. He shapes it with planes and marks it with a compass. He shapes it into the figure of a man with the beauty of a man to dwell in a house. He cuts down cedars or he chooses a cypress tree or an oak and lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar and the rain nourishes it. Then it becomes fuel for a man. He takes a part of it and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread. Also, he makes a god and worships it. He makes it an idol and falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire. Over the half he eats meat. He roasts it and is satisfied. Also, he warms himself and says, Aha, I am warm. I have seen the fire. And the rest of it he makes into a god, his idol, and falls down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, Deliver me, for you are my God. They know not, nor do they discern. For he has shut their eyes so that they cannot see, and their hearts so they cannot understand. No one considers, nor is there knowledge or discernment to say, Half of it I burned in the fire. I also baked bread on its coals. I roasted meat and have eaten. And shall I... Make the rest of it an abomination, 
Shall I fall down before a block of wood? He feeds on ashes. A deluded heart has led him astray. And he cannot deliver himself or say, Is there not a lie in my right hand? Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's again bow in prayer. Dear Lord, we thank you for these words that you have written such a long time ago. We pray that you will lead Pastor Bob in the, in the interpretation of these words as he leads them to us to help us understand them better and that we may live by your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, this is one of those occasions in which you will be right when you go home and someone asks you the question, what was the sermon about? And your answer is, God. You will indeed be correct this time. Because that is indeed the title of our message, God. That is the focus of what is going on here in Isaiah 44. It is the subject matter of that first article of the Belgic Confession. So kids, when you go home and mom and dad ask you the question tonight, so what was Pastor Bob's sermon about? You may rightfully answer, God. But what a subject matter. Let us stop and consider, first of all, the fact before we get into the, the three points of tonight, that once again, what we have before us in this first article of the Belgic Confession, that for which people were willing to die. That for which a father was willing to watch his children executed. He was unwilling to take away this truth that is stated here in this first article of the Belgic Confession. So I hope you, once again, as we reflect back upon last week and we went into a little bit of the history and, and why each of these statements begins with these words, we believe, or I should say most of the statements begin with those words, we believe. Why these are not just words upon a page, but, but this is truth, a truth so precious People are willing to suffer immense torture and to die because they will not recant the truth. We believe. We believe. There are many passages we could turn to this evening to to look at where it is that, that this statement out of the Belgic Confession comes. It is a summary. It is a summary of that which the Word of God places before us about God. The only other way to do this would be to say, we believe all that is in Scripture about God. And while that would be a true statement, it is somewhat lacking in its clarification, isn't it? And if there is one thing that Debray, along with the others of the lowlands of Belgium and the Netherlands, wanted to make sure was convey, conveyed, 
was a preciseness of what it is that they believed. They wanted to be distinguished. They didn't want it to be generic. They didn't want it to be a statement that, well, just about anybody in the world could make that statement. They wanted it to say precisely that which they believed. Let's look at three things this evening. First of all, the context of this passage of Isaiah. Secondly, the word of the Lord that comes to us from this passage. And then thirdly, this first article of the Belgic Confession. The context of Isaiah. First of all, we, we ought to look at it nationally in terms of the nations. There are two nations of interest in Scripture that is the nation of Israel and the nation of Judah. By the time we get to Isaiah chapter 44, Israel has already gone into captivity to the Assyrians. They are a nation no more. They have been dispersed amongst the nations of the world and are no longer in existence, nor will they ever be again in existence as a separate, unique nation in that regard. They have been dispersed. God's judgment has come upon them. They have faced the enemy and the enemy has won by the sovereign decree and plan and purpose of God. Judah, the nation to whom Isaiah is called, the nation to whom Isaiah is, is in particular writing, it is this message that Isaiah is to take to his people, the people of Judah. Judah is on the verge of captivity to Babylon. We're not there yet. We haven't entered it yet, but we're on the verge. We're dealing with a series of kings who, who at, at this stage of Judah's history are good and then we have bad and good and bad. And God is coming with, in a sense, the same word. He came to Israel and says, unless you repent and turn from your wickedness, you too shall go into captivity. I will use the nation of Babylon to come. In fact, one of the things that Isaiah and Jeremiah often get in trouble for in their lives and in their ministry is they keep saying that. And people keep saying, you're traitors by saying Babylon's going to conquer us. Nobody can conquer us. We're the people of the Lord. And they have to keep coming back and saying, no, the Lord plans to use Babylon to punish you. For what? What is the cause of, of this captivity or being on the verge? What are the reasons? We could summarize it by saying two. One, their continual idolatry. They are serving other gods. They have forsaken the Lord, or they have supplemented the Lord, or they have replaced the Lord, all fit, with the idol gods of other nations. Hence, the words that God uses even in this passage that Isaiah is to convey about idolatry. This makes no sense. What are you doing? You worship the gods of these other nations. Do you realize what it is you are wor worshiping? Stop, think, consider. And 
And because of that continual idolatry, that is going to continue, Judah is also eventually going to be going into captivity. But there is a second reason, and that is their refusal to reason. Come, let us reason together, says the Lord, though your sins be like scarlet, they shall be as white as wool. But it has to be on the Lord's terms. They're trying to deal with their sin by running after these other gods, by the following after other gods, that that, that in some way will relieve them of the guilt that they, they sense, the guilt that they know, the guilt that is in their heart. And they refuse to listen to God's call to reason. God's call to hear the word of the Lord. God's call to stop and to consider, to think who he is and what he has done. There's our context. That's where not only the book of Isaiah comes into play, but in particularly this passage or this section of Isaiah is where we are at. So now let's zero in. We've got the broad picture. Now let's zero in on what is happening here. What does the word of the Lord tell us? Three things from this particular passage, right? One, there is no other God. One of the amazing things about Scripture is that from the very beginning, God exists. Scripture does not begin with a rationale or explanation of the existence of God. Scripture doesn't begin. It's not like God comes to Moses and says, you know, Moses, man, I'm going to write this big, long book, 66 books in total. It's going to span thousands of years. Well, you know, maybe the first thing I ought to do, Moses, is to explain my existence to people. Moses, here is what you are to write. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. You see, Moses, I exist. I don't have to explain my existence. Think about that. There is no need for God to explain, to reason with us his existence. I've kind of used this illustration before, but I kind of think it fits here. Okay? Spring is coming, Lord willing. Little ants are going to begin their work. Okay? Let's do this. First time this spring that you see an ant, put it on your finger. Just put it there. And reason with the ant that you exist. Convince the ant. Try, try to reason with that ant, place before the ant, your existence. Get the ant to say, oh, I see you, human, and I see that you exist. You go, Pastor Bob, that'd be a big waste of time. Hmm, 
would it not be a waste of God's time to explain his existence to people who can't understand his existence? It'd be like talking to the wall. Why? Because we all come into this world as sinful creatures. We come into this world denying that God is. We come into this world suppressing the truth of the reality, Paul says, of God's existence. And unless the Holy Spirit opens our heart and opens our mind and grants us the gift of faith, we would never believe that God exists. See, it isn't God reasoned with us his existence. I believe God exists because God gave me all these logical proofs for his existence. Only by faith. Only by faith. Oh, once faith is implanted, once faith is given as that gift, once we're no longer blind but our eyes can see, oh, now all of a sudden there's all these explanations that we see. But until those eyes are opened, did you see where this passage ended? Verse 18. They know not, nor do they discern, for he has shut their eyes so that they cannot see. And their hearts so that they cannot understand. That's mankind. That's humanity. So God doesn't come offering some explanation of his existence. He simply comes with his revelation. I am. I am. If you have a friend at school or a friend at work that, that you're somehow an unbeliever, that you're somehow trying to logically show them the existence of God, it is not going to happen. They're verse 18. Only with God's gift of faith through the Holy Spirit will they ever see the truth. The truth of what? God is. God is. And God exists. So the word begins. In the beginning, God, who exists, created all that is. That's what he's saying here. Verse 6, thus says the Lord, I am the first, I am the last, besides me there is no God. There's none others. This is it. You can go back to Isaiah chapter 40. You get the same statement. You get the same statement in Isaiah chapter 43. I and I only blot out transgressions. I and I only am Israel's Savior. I and I only 
There are no other gods. This is God's message. The God who reveals himself upon the pages of Scripture is the only God who exists. There is none other. And for that, for that, people are willing to say, you can kill me if you want, but I'm not recanting that truth. I'm not taking back that truth. I'm willing to die for that truth. And they do. And many have. Confess Allah is God or that's it. You're dead. I will not. I will not. There is but one living his head off. See, the reality is, my friends, people are still dying over this truth. We had, uh, uh, we, we began in our, our high school class today to, to, to talk about uh, Mormonism. And one, one of the things that, that came out crystal clear in the, in the presentation we had from the documentation from the Mormon church itself, is they do not believe this. The Mormon church, Mormons do not believe there is one God. This is all around us. These are the people who have families are forever. And people buy their stuff. One of their largest proponents is on our airwaves. Nine, what, ten to noon every morning? Trying to somehow or another hoodwink us into believing he's a Christian. But he denies this essential fact in the fact of his church's teaching. There is but one God. That's it. There is no other. See, this is all around us. The people with their nice little coexist bumper stickers. Do you think they believe this truth? Of course not. Do you think the culture and the media of our society in America today believes this truth? They may not cut off your head literally, but they'll cut off your head politically. To stand and express this very same truth in our world and in our society today as a politician would be death for a political career. Are you saying Allah isn't? No, he isn't. Are you saying we're not all little gods? No, we're not. That's the point God is making here to his people. Back in the Old Testament, there is None other. No one. Zero. Zilch. There are no other gods. There are only the figments of men's imagination. 
Secondly, God is saying that there is none, none that can be compared to him. None. To whom will you compare me? Who is like me? Now, when the question comes, let him proclaim it. You know who the him is there? Come on, Allah, speak up. Okay, here's the opportunity. Allah, if you exist, speak. What did you just hear? Nothing. Why? Because it's the very same thing of Elijah on Mark Carmel. Go ahead, prophets of Baal. Let's see who answers. And there was nothing. No one answered. There was not even a peep. There was not even a little spark. There was not even a little puff of smoke. Nothing. Why? Because there is no other God. There is no being like the Lord. This is how, in a sense, the book of Job ends, isn't it? For four chapters, God goes on, starting in chapter 38. Job, how are you going to compare me to anything? And the end is, I have to confess, Lord, I spoke way too soon. I put my foot in my mouth again. Lord, there is none like you. That's why, you know, we, we offer sometimes these traits. What I think God is like, oh, my friend, be so careful that you don't trivialize the being who we call God. There is none other. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 9. From that section on of Isaiah 40, God goes on over and over and over again there as well to declare, it's only me. It's only me. Who is like me? Who tends his flock like a shepherd? Who carries them in his bosom? Who gently leads those who are young? Who has measured, verse 12, the waters in the hollow of his hand? Who has marked off the heavens with a span? Who? To whom and how would you compare God? Well, I think Allah is just another name for God. Do you realize what an abomination that is? To the being that we call God. This is what God is addressing here. In Isaiah 44. But he's also addressing the absolute foolishness of idols. He's saying this makes no sense. Let's just stop and consider this. We got a nice big tree. We cut down the tree. From that tree, we take some of that wood. We burn it up in the fire. Makes us nice and toasty warm. Or we cook our bread over that fire. Make it very useful. But then what is it? It's ash. It's nothing. 
crumbles, becomes dust. The other part of the tree, the next section, we cut down and the carpenter with all of his skill, with the compass, with the plane, hones and fashions something in the image of man, something in the image of a creation, a part of the creation, and then falls down and worships it and says, my God, how great thou art. The Lord says, how foolish. It's the same piece of wood you're burning in the fireplace. How can that be your God? He speaks of this in other places with, yeah, they have hands, but they cannot move. They have mouths, but they cannot speak. They have eyes, but they cannot see. Ears, but they cannot hear. The foolishness of idolatry. The foolishness of putting something in the place of God. And we're not so silly. We're not so foolish, are we? In our society, in our day, in our generation. To actually piece of, take a piece of wood and worship it, are we? Well, we're not so foolish as to call it a god, but we perhaps are foolish enough to make it a god. Just think of the amount of time and pursuit we have in going after little pieces of paper that are green and rectangle. All the time, all the energy to accumulate those pieces of paper, the lies we're willing to tell in order to get more pieces of paper, the people we're willing to cheat and swindle in order to get more of those pieces of paper, the stinginess with which we hoard those little pieces of paper. A plastic box that sits in the middle of our living rooms, large, big, huge, with a picture that's real to life, and we're captivated by it by hours and hours, but we don't have time to read God's Word, we don't have time to go to a Bible study, we don't have time to pray, but we've got hours to spend Before a box. And of course it goes on, doesn't it? So maybe we are, to some extent, in the day and age in which we live, still need to hear this word of the Lord about the foolishness of idolatry. Because it still goes on, it still happens. Still that which pulls at our heart. It's still that which pulls us away. John Calvin said one time that, that human beings are nothing more than idol factories. We, we, we just keep coming up with more things to worship. I think we'd all have to admit how true that is. Things that we get, we place so much importance on rather than our relationship with the Lord.
So you see, it's out of passages like Isaiah 44 that we read, we all believe with the heart and confessed with the mouth that there is one only simple and spiritual being whom we call God. That article of the Belgic Confession is reminding us of the fact that God is one being. There are not many gods. He's not a god among many. He is one. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. Repeat it over and over and over. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And these are the very people who have been given that word who are now making idols out of trees. And looking to the trees to lead and guide them. God is one being. We're not each our own little God. It's not we live well the Mormon life and then in the next life I become a God with my own little planet and my multitude of wives with my children so that they can live as good little Mormons and get their own planets and they'll become gods as well. There is one God. And we'll die for him. Secondly, this God is a simple being. Now when you and I read that, we're kind of going, is that a little bit of a cut? I mean, if we called somebody simple, we'd be thinking that means not quite so intelligent. Simple here is not in terms of intellect. It's in terms of composition. God is the only being that is not complex, but is simple. He is not composed of many parts. It's not that God is dependent upon part A and part B and part C, and the three parts have to fit together so that we get God. God is not like a jigsaw puzzle where you have to fit all of these components and then we have God. God is one. He is singular. He is simple. He is not complex. He is not dependent upon anything else. He is self-existent. And he is self-sufficient. He needs nothing else. God is not even dependent upon my worship. God will not cease to be God if I don't worship him. Which is, you see, part of the rub of where this gets the bray, and the reformed of the lowlands in trouble with the inquisitioners. You mean God is not dependent? Of course he's dependent upon the church. No, he isn't. No, he isn't. God is self-existent. Heresy! Off with her head. 
God not only does the statement say is a simple being, he is also a spiritual being. He has no hands, he has no head, he has no feet, he has no body. So how many Catholic churches at the time Debray is writing this do you suppose have pictures of God in them? All which depict him as a human being. Are you saying that's wrong? Yes. Yes. Because God is not and cannot be represented with a human body. He is a spiritual being. Well, we'd have to repaint all our churches. Yes. Well, we're not going to do that. Now, either recant or die. No, God is a spiritual being. You can't, you can't replicate him in a picture. You can't illustrate God by a drawing. God is not just a human being, as the Mormons teach, who was Adam, who discovered Mormonism and is now has exalted himself to be the first God. So many people today, even, even people of the Reformed faith, oh, those, those Mormons are good people, they're Christians. Is a spiritual being. And God has attributes. That's the fourth thing we come to. God's attributes. The confession went on to say, He is eternal, incomprehensible, invisible, immutable, infinite, almighty, perfectly wise, just, good, and the overflowing fountain of all good. This is the one, only, simple, and spiritual being which we call God. You know, in our theology, we, we divide these attributes between that which we call non-communicable, those which only God possesses, and, and we would say does not share with humanity, uh, Perhaps that language would be helpful. Or that we call our communicable, that, that God communicates or passes on to mankind. I thought, well, this will be easy. I'll just make a couple of lists. <laughs> the problem is nobody agrees. <laughs> and and there, you can argue some back and forth. You know? is, is, for example, the fact that God is love. Is that communicable? Well, we as human beings love, but do we really love the way God loves? Some people put wisdom in the category of communicable. Because we can know things, we are like God. And, and there's a point in time in which I'd even stop and say, really? I'm like God because I can know things? I think God knows far more in, in a way that, that it's not even comparable And yet, 
we have this glorious text, and God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So I think the best way to look at this, my friends, without getting involved in what is communicable, what isn't, is this. Is that God has chosen in some areas to share with us as his creatures part of the attributes that he possesses as God. But there are other attributes of God that belong to God and God alone. I mean, I could be king of a country, but I could never be sovereign over the universe. And so we step back from it and we say, you know, Part of the, the absolute beauty and love of God is that this simple spiritual being that we call God has chosen to communicate with you and I. In a language that we can understand. Not only does he communicate in, with us in a language, but he became one of us. Is that enough just to make you stop? Wow. What a God. We serve. Father, thank you for your word tonight, for its reminder that as we dig further into your word and further into this confession of faith, we pray, Father, that we too will come to the conviction of what we believe, and that in believing, Father, we will pass this, this glorious heritage to our children and they to a children yet unborn. For your glory, for your honor, for your praise. Thank you that you, as this glorious being, say to us, I am love. In Christ's name, God's people say, Amen.